doesn't matter what your training is, it matters what your intention is. Use fewer than three channels. Have very, very clear intention of what you want to achieve in that treatment and perform the treatment. It's astonishing, actually, to hear acupuncturists not believe that acupuncture can treat anything and everything. It can. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. The University of Washington's IT department recently came out with an inclusive language guide. It's a long list of words that they suggest might be offensive and thus should be avoided, along with the proper ways of speaking that demonstrates you're a sensitive and virtuous person. Brown bag, ninja, blind spot, minority, grandfather, and even the word healthy, along with a long list of other everyday language, regardless of context or intention, are all off limits. I am not sure how this social experiment with rejiggering our language is going to work out for us in the long run. Time will tell as we see how this plays out. From my experience of sitting with patients in clinic, I can tell you this, prejudging the meaning that words might have for someone in your clinical practice, it will not be helpful to your patients. Our job as practitioners is to meet our patients where they are. Why? Because our patients need an invitingly open space, free of judgment, where they can bring forth all aspects of themselves. On a good day, they come in with troubles, the source of which they are not certain. Other times, they come in broken and shattered. They are not even sure how to talk about their experience. They start up with a train of thought, only to have it catch the breath in their chest and moisten their eyes. They can't fully describe their experience to themselves, let alone another human being. They don't need our judgment or correction. They need us to be reliable guides who will walk with them into the dark forest of their suffering and uncertainty. Who we are is the greatest of all the mysteries in the world. It's such a curiosity to me that we each live with, air quotes here, ourself, and yet, speaking personally, I am constantly surprised at what I find myself thinking and feeling. It seems so strange that we don't know ourselves, and yet, all the great traditions point out how blind we are to who we are. Our patients don't need us to lay a framework down on them. They need us to follow them, stay present as they discover something of themselves they didn't quite connect with before. Those who come to us for help need us to be reliable and steady navigators of the uncharted coastlines of their inner terrain. When being with a patient, we need to use their language. That's how you show someone that you're on their side, that you're listening and trustworthy. Often enough, people need to hear reflected back with kindness and clarity what they're already saying to themselves, but they can't quite hear it. I'm thinking of the work that Margot Rossi and Nick Paul do 
with clean language, how they keenly use a patient's own words to help them deepen their experience with themselves, how cut off but not lost resources in the psyche are hovering like ghosts in a symptom or familiar emotional groove. In clinic, our job is to listen, to still our own mind, to quiet our biases and beliefs, and help listen our patients into their own wisdom. This is tender territory. We are dealing with the feral parts that we all carry. We are in the presence of deep hurts and profound resources. Judging our patients for how they talk will slam up a barrier that for damn good reasons you'll not be able to get through if you can't respect those tender places that are already failed by language. It is possible to help unlock these resources for healing, but you have to show that you're trustworthy. You have to meet your patients as they are and use your empathy, curiosity, and compassion. Patients who come to an acupuncture clinic will often tell you things that they won't tell mainstream professionals, but they'll only tell you if you're a trustworthy navigator. And part of being a trustworthy navigator is the capacity to listen for what meaning words have for your patient, not for you. This is the opposite of the UW's list of correct speech. It's often the opposite of your patient's own sense of what's right and wrong, because so often in this life, we are mistaken. We swallow an idea without considering anything more than how it makes us feel in the moment. We, for good reason, take on the beliefs of those we grow up with and also of those that we respect. We find solutions to a problem in life, and it makes life better. But it also tends to sow the seeds of a new challenge that will manifest somewhere down the road. This is unavoidable. We meet our destiny on the road that we took to avoid it. Sometimes we decide a strength is a weakness, and other times we confuse weakness for virtue and strength. So we all, from time to time, need a reliable guide upon whom we can lean and who we can trust with the confusing and shadowy parts of our experience. In the clinic with your patients, it's more helpful to allow them to be who and how they are. Establish some trust and see if they'll let you in enough that you might be able to help. Don't judge them. Follow them. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. 
do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Our work in clinic so often has us wandering the boundary between the known and the unknown, between certainty and mystery, and back and forth between the conditioned mind and the inspirational spirit. Acupuncture is not simply a method or a technique. It's a way of engaging our patients and ourselves. We are going to get into all of this with Anne Cecil Sturman in just a moment. Anne is the author of several books, and her perspectives on acupuncture and healing 
are an invitation into the spirit and heart of our medicine. We'll get into this in a moment. If you have found that the more you understand acupuncture, the more mysterious and curious it becomes, then you are going to love this conversation with Anne. Let's get into it. Anne Cecil Sturman, welcome to Geological. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this. So what are you looking forward to? Well, I like talking to people about acupuncture. I like talking to people about life. And and I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, and, and that's what you like to do too. So I think we'll have a good time. I suspect we will. It is fun to talk about acupuncture. Curious thing. Acupuncture is so weird. Often I have patients go, you know, this is weird. And all I can say is, yep, you're right. And it gets weirder the longer you do it. I think that's true. But also when people say this is weird, they usually follow it. But it's working. (laughs) (laughs) There is that, right? They often want to come back. It's working. We'll take it. Yeah. So, I mean, that begs so many questions. Mm. You know, they say it's working. And often I'll, I'll have this question in the back of my mind, like, what is actually working here? What's happening? Mm. Is that your first question? I've got millions of questions. I mean, that's what's on my mind at the moment. It's often a question in my mind. It's like, what is working or who is working? What is happening here? We have this thing we say, oh, well, we just adjust the channels and we move the chi. Mm. Okay. That's very unsatisfying answer. Yeah, I actually don't like that answer very much. I think about it in a different way. When I say, is that your first question? What I really mean, is that the first thing we're discussing? It's a question that everyone asks, including me. We all ask that question, what is working? But mm-hmm. I think that on a personal level and almost a private level, which I think about it in quite an unusual way, and it works for me. And I think of the channels as being not in the body at all. I think of the channels as being external and universal. And when we practice acupuncture, it seems to me that what we're doing, and I'm not claiming to know any of this, Actually, it's really healthy not to know. I think it's very healthy to sit in a place of not knowing at all. But my current working theory (laughs) is that… Now, um, hang on a second. Are we talking theory or hypothesis? So often people say, I have a theory. Well, theories are proven. But hypotheses, hmm. they're not proven yet. It's an inquiry and… This. Now you're starting another discussion, Michael, because now we've got to talk about the word proven. Mm. And this is where I go off the reservation myself. How do we declare that something is proven? And for me, anecdotal evidence and experiential evidence is adequate for me. That's enough. Because the generally accepted meaning of proven is 
there have been studies done and we can show that this is true. Well, there's a big problem with studies and acupuncture, and that is that we are working with a commodity, qi, which in no way can be measured. And so if you can't measure the very commodity that you're claiming to work with, there is no proving to be done. Mm -hmm. Proving is utterly impossible. So if you did a study of, let's say you took 100 people and they all have, let's say, cluster headaches. And so the acupuncturist running the study comes up with five or, or ten whatever acupuncture points or a channel that they think, think um, okay, so we're going to use this channel, let's say it's the gallbladder primary channel, on every one of these people and we're just going to apply all the same points to the same people at the same time of day after they've eaten a meal or whatever. So we're going to eliminate as many variables as we can. There's no way that you can measure the impact of that person's history, of the trauma they had when they were three, of the, the meal that they had last week, of their 10 years of veganism the decade before, of the poor night's sleep that they had the night before. All these factors, there are myriad, immeasurable number of factors that play into how an acupuncture treatment is going to, to play out. That's half the story, I think. And the other half is that's not how we practice acupuncture. Acupuncture for 100 people with cluster headaches, which is a Western diagnosis, we should have a hundred individual treatments. Some people will react to certain channels or certain points and other people will not given their history and their background. And the only way you can determine how to individualize that treatment is by taking the pulses. So the studies, we can really put the studies aside. We are not going to show that acupuncture is able to treat everything by doing a single study or a million studies we cannot measure chi and what we're trying to do in those hundred people is to get that chi to move freely but move freely where move freely through the head some people will have headaches because their chi is not moving through the head some people will have headaches because their digestive tract is bound or their liver is tight or they sprained their ankle and it's referring up to the head you know it's just a deep, deep, deep art. It's an art just as much as it is a science. And um, Absolutely. So I want to put the proven thing aside. <laughs> well, I mean, you bring something up here. Let's just hang with proven for a moment. I'm sticking a pin in channels or outside the body, and we're coming back to that. You've really <laughs> got my attention there. But this thing about proven, it's like being Right. I'm thinking about like having an argument with your spouse. It's like, well, I'm right. I can prove it. Blah, blah, blah. It's like proving what and to whom. Yes. So often it feeds into a story of, I got this. So often it feeds into a story of, well, whatever story has our attention and we might even be suffering from, mm. all that comes in as well. Mm. Proving is such an interesting thing. I, again, I've been thinking a lot about the scientific method love the scientific method. I love it because 
in this incredibly ever-changing world, which, you know, you don't have to read the Tao Te Ching to know that, right? Just look around. Mm-hmm. We're trying to make some sense. One of the great things about the scientific method is it gives us a way of, like, parsing change as we're in the midst of change. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think of it as, like, the Western equivalent of the I Ching. Well, that's beautifully said. Well, the scientific method is essential. I mean, the sofa I'm sitting on would not be here without the scientific method. I wouldn't have a car, you know, or a microphone. Um, there would be so much that we wouldn't have without the scientific method. It is absolutely essential, but it's only relevant with things you can measure. Well, for me too, I find it's a way of focusing my attention and inquiry. Hmm. Again, am I working out of a theory? Well, theories supposedly, according to the scientific method, are proven. Am I working out of a hypothesis? No, what's another way to say hypothesis? I have a question. I have an inquiry. Oh, now we're getting into something juicy. I have an inquiry. There's something I don't know about. How am I looking at it? How am I framing it? Mm-hmm. Right? We're talking about studies and why they're sometimes not helpful. Oh, we're going to treat the gallbladder channel. Well, that might get you some good results for a gallbladder headache. But if you're framing headaches as gallbladder channel, oh, there's so much more that you're missing. And then you might even make the big mistake of going, hey, Chinese medicine doesn't treat that, which is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. That's actually, that's why I like to have these conversations in public because I'm very... um, disheartened actually by the number of people who say well you know i tried acupuncture but it really didn't work for me there were so many things that went wrong in that process it could have been the diagnosis it could have been a number of things but what does not factor into the scientific method which also cannot be measured which is in addition the defining factor in a successful treatment is intention, the intention of the practitioner. So you could do, a, you could make a correct diagnosis from the pulses. You could formulate a terrific strategy, insert your needles, and if you walk away and go and text the next patient or pop outside into the hallway and have a cup of tea or something, your intention is absent. And so that immeasurable factor is removed and the, the patient is often left with um, a treatment that is not potent. Mm. So tell us a little more about how to bring that potency into the work we do, especially, I mean, a lot of people are running two rooms, three rooms, yeah. They've got other things going on. Maybe they're also making herbs. How do we bring some of that intention in? What are some ways? And what I'm asking for here, not like the big answer, like go sit outside the room and meditate. What are some small things that we can do that might help? Because I think it's helpful to start with small. Yeah. I don't think it's necessary actually to go outside the room and, and meditate and hold. And I think 
someone running two or three or four rooms at a time can still achieve good intention. I run one patient at a time. And my advice to my students is charge more, Mm. see one person at a time, charge a lot more if you need to. The number of treatments that that patient will need to overcome their condition will become vastly reduced and the amount of financial outlay that that patient makes will be roughly the same, perhaps. Plus they save time. Yes. Many people don't want to practice that way, and I think that's absolutely fine. But if you're seeing two or three patients or four patients at a time, then the intention must be focused where it matters the most, which is at the point of insertion of the needle. So there are stages in intention, right? When you take the pulses, there's an intention to capture the message that the pulses want to send the practitioner. So you you place your, your finger on the pulse. My intention now is to be very clear that I'm not projecting to the pulses what I expect to find in the pulses having had this brief conversation. That will be the first thing. The second thing, my intention is to receive from the pulses a clear picture of what's happening internally and externally and to rescind any temporary judgment I find my unconscious mind making at that time or conscious mind, right? So that would be the first intention. Can we really feel what's happening and suspend for a moment everything that we inadvertently conjured up in our own minds before we approach the pulse? Then the second thing is after they lie down on the table, I think the next part of intention is to say, to create a space in which the maximum benefit achievable in that hour or 15 minutes or whatever it is, is enjoyed. That whatever potential there is for healing in that time with the practitioner is fully realized. That would be the next intention. And so that requires the practitioner to dispense with hope. It's not about hope. It's not like, oh, here I am, Um, we're going to do this treatment and this patient is really not doing well and I really, really hope that this is going to help. That is a burden that you put on your patient. Yes. Whether they know that you're thinking that or not, it's a burden because it's affecting the energy in the room. Mm -hmm. So I like to dispense with hope and use certainty instead. And certainty not to be confused with arrogance because arrogance has no mystery in it. Arrogance has um, this um, separation of practitioner and patient. So instead of, well, I've done this a million times, I know exactly what I'm doing, I'm well-educated, and nothing can possibly go wrong, here we go. That's arrogant. Yes. You're asking for trouble, too, when you do that. I've been there. It's like, oh, I've seen this. I know what this is. We're going to open a can of whoop-ass. Watch this. Oops. We've all been there. Every practitioner has been there because acupuncture is one of the most humbling of professions. It's very humbling. 
patients die, <laughs> patients sometimes get sicker <laughs> because it's part of the journey or you made the wrong diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, it's very, very humbling. And so that part of the intention would be, you can even say it in an affirmation, may this time reveal the greatest potential possible. And then in the actual insertion of the needle, that's where the intention goes on steroids. Intention as you insert a needle is probably the most important time of the treatment because if you're chatting about the weather or their son's wedding or their coming college graduation or whatever or the delays in the subway that morning while you're putting a needle in spleen four, let's say, you're not really putting a needle in spleen four. You're sticking a piece of metal through the skin. You're not encountering the energetic mystery of that point. And it's funny, I just picked spleen four out of nowhere, but that is actually one of my favorite points. It's a beautiful point. It's a, you know, as you well know, it's a, it's a source level point that is also a low point. It's the opening point of Chiang Mai. As you, I know that you know all this stuff, but it's such a rich point. And then it has the name grandparent, grandchild. So you're reaching way back into the ethers through to the beginning of humanity and you're, you're encountering the DNA, really. You're encountering the human lineage for all time. It's such a profound opening. But if you're talking about the subway delays and you're needling into that, you've missed it. You've missed the potential in that point and you've missed the opportunity to use your intention to reach into that mysterious void and invite from it a development in that person, which is the whole point of the treatment. None of this can be measured in a study. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. So I just want to pause for a moment here. We are coming back to channels outside the body, I promise. I'm, I'm putting a pin in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get away from that. 
<laughs> but there's a couple things that you said here that really landed. So the first, you were talking about taking the pulse. And the intention of taking the pulse is to see what the pulse sings to you. There's an aspect of non-doing in this sitting with the pulse. So this is the first time I've heard someone say intention and kind of connect it with non-doing, like just be present and open and receiving. Intention is just receiving, not projecting, just empty. Intention, empty. Ooh, okay. I get that. That rings true. I think people listening to this, there's those moments we put our fingers on people's pulses and like, <gasps> right? Something comes through. Other thing that you said, and I love this, that within the treatment, the unfolding of the treatment, there is this aspect that it's enjoyed. Mm. Oh, yes. Thank you for vocalizing that. This aspect of enjoyment, yes. Not pleasure necessarily, but enjoyment, which is much deeper. And then you put in the same sentence, and I want to know more about this, you put in the same sentence certainty and mystery. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally what I heard you say, is that when you needle a point, that the needling is an invitation. Yes. Yeah, I could see that you could easily run four rooms, but if you were doing this in each room with each person? Yes, but it takes time to do that. It takes time because you can't rush the invitation and you can't rush the intention and you can't rush the reception of the sensation of the mystery. Now that's interesting. Most people talk about the sensation of the needle and the duh chi, and you're talking about the sensation of the mystery. Yes, well, it's different in every single person. You needle spleen four, for example, on 100 people. It's going to be different for the practitioner 100 times, mm -hmm. and it will be different for each of those 100 people. Sometimes you can needle into that point and the person will immediately experience extreme nausea and other people will experience uh, fluttering in the chest. Some people will feel, they'll claim to feel absolutely nothing and then five minutes later they'll go, whoa, wait a minute, I feel that in my throat. Mm. Or sometimes you'll needle into spleen four and some people will feel it in the eye. They'll have a little twitch in the eye on the same side because the second trajectory goes up to um, stomach one. So those sensations can happen anywhere. And, of course, spleen four treats rebellious chi. It harmonizes the spleen and stomach. And when there's an intention to treat something, the energy of the complaint can immediately ripple up to the surface so that the nausea comes out. The ears of nausea suddenly becomes exacerbated for three or four seconds and then that chi has transformed mysteriously and evaporated or regrouped. That's the mystery. What happens to it? 
Does it regroup? Does it exit? Does it internalize? Is it recycled to the kidneys? These are all mysteries that are individual to each patient. There's so much that we uh, not even try to understand. It's a really curious trade that we're in. People come to us because they think we know something about helping them, and hopefully we do. And often in the medical profession, people are expected to know, or patients expect us to know. We often expect ourselves to know. And yes, again, there's a certain amount that we do, you know, we've got to have our skill and our art. But there's also this other piece where I'm not shrugging my shoulders like I don't care, but I'm shrugging my shoulders like, well, I'm doing my best to follow it, but it's a tangled mess. Mm-hmm. And that's not a problem. That's kind of how life works. Life's a tangled mess. Look at DNA. DNA is a tangled mess. Right. <laughs> Precisely. But I do think that once you've taken the pulses mm. and you develop a strategy and you make a decision to perform a certain treatment, that you proceed in a very clear-headed way. It's very clear-headed, it's determined, it feels purposeful, Mm -hmm. it feels like you're on a mission. And allow the, the tangled mess to be there in the room and then to unwind. But also, what's very interesting about about this mystery of determination and intention and the the mystery of needling into the point is that you can still be very, very clear in the head while you're experiencing the mystery of the treatment. And then sometimes, this doesn't happen very often anymore, but it used to happen a lot when I treated the divergent channels. Sometimes, not a lot, but occasionally it would happen, where I would start needling and then the needles the the patient would either say that is very uncomfortable and so I would put another needle in and the patient said well no that's making that first needle even more uncomfortable now so you could say well this is obviously part of the chi working out but what I like to do is say all right that is a message to me it's not being received Mm. take those two needles out take the pulses again reassess, go again, because the diagnosis was not correct and it's been proven on the table. So there's that also. There's the, the being prepared to receive the mes- message of rejection from the patient. As we're talking about this, and this is just something I found over the course of practicing over years, that having that intention, having a certain clarity, this is what I see. This is what I'm being called to with this patient. Yes. And then just to do that. Yes. Do that. See what happens. Not this, oh, I'm doing this, and I, oh, just to cover my bases, I'll do some of this, and I'll do some of that, and do some of the other thing. That is a good way to ruin any kind of a treatment. It gets so muddy. Oh. The patient's body has no idea what to do with that because we have no idea. I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. And if that's one thing that someone takes away from this conversation, I hope it's that. If you put 28 needles in a patient, 
you're not going to get anywhere. It's just a dog's dinner, as we say in Australia. (laughs) 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 Also, in the Suwen, it tells us do never, ever needle more than three channels. Never needle more than three channels. No treatment should have points that occur on more than three channels. Otherwise, you will cause death. It's written there. So if you're going, because I'm going to needle, you know, stomach this and spleen that and liver that and ren that and kidney that, that is a mess. And it would be far better, far better in a case like that, spleen, stomach, spleen, this stomach, that, kidney, that, liver, that, to just go back to the pulses. What is the weakest organ? What is the weakest pulse? Well, the spleen is the weakest pulse. Great. Let's needle kidney two and spleen eight and ascend kidney yang to the spleen via the third trajectory of the kidney primary channel, just two points. And we're going to mux those two points and the patient will walk away with a greatly empowered spleen. That treatment of two points will could take that patient all the way. But the treatment of 14, 15, 16 needles of five different channels, that will definitely not do that. So you're talking about learning to trust ourselves. Yes, and acupuncture. And trust acupuncture. Acupuncturists often do not trust acupuncture. I have come to the same conclusion. I often hear, well, there's not only that. Oh, acupuncture doesn't treat that. I'd also have to say, and and I'm sorry to say it, but I've seen it, there's no one who's more dismissive about acupuncture than other acupuncturists. I mean, in terms of like, oh, that person doesn't know what they're doing, or that's a stupid method, or, I mean, we can be very, very mean to each other. It can be judgmental, and the profession is very often quite judgmental of people of different training. Exactly. And it doesn't matter what your training is. It matters what your intention is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Use fewer than three channels. Have very, very clear intention of what you want to achieve in that treatment and perform the treatment. It's astonishing, actually, to hear acupuncturists not believe that acupuncture can treat anything and everything. It can. There is nothing acupuncture cannot treat. Now, We have to be careful where we make that statement, especially in this current climate of cancel culture. We have to be very, very careful where we say that. But it is the truth. And if we're wise as a profession, we will not advertise that fact. We'll keep that fact very, very quiet and amongst ourselves and go about our work and change the entire culture and the entire humanity, change all humanity one person at a time until we reach a critical mass where the whole of human consciousness is transformed into loving kindness. And if that sounds utopian and unworkable or unrealistic, then I would submit that a person who thinks that way has not really encountered acupuncture, which is an extraordinary, profound 
modality into something that has nothing to do with acupuncture, and that is the channels. The channels predate acupuncture. All right. So we're swinging back to the channels. I knew we'd get back here. (laughs) Yeah. Tell us more about that. The channels predate humanity. The channels enabled humanity to manifest. So the channels really, we call them acupuncture channels, but they're not acupuncture channels. They're the channels of the enlivening and creation of humanity. So regardless of anyone's view of evolution, it fits. The theory of the channels and the origin of the channels fits whether regardless of whether you think we evolved this way or that way or we spontaneously emerged or we've taken four and a half million years to emerge, that doesn't matter at all. What enabled human consciousness to spark is the acupuncture channels. So they have been flowing universally perhaps but certainly they've been flowing through this planet for all time since its creation and at the appropriate moment the spark of humanity regardless of how it evolved how the physical vehicle of the spirit of humanity got here the spark of humanity occurred via these channels And so the channels are external to the human body. And what we do as acupuncturists is we invite any one of those channels or a couple or three at most at a time. (laughs) I like to work with one single channel. That's how I practice. One single channel on one side Mm -hmm. of the body. And we can talk about that too. I would love to. We'll circle back. Illness occurs when the mind is acting on the breaks of the channel. So the human mind impedes the free flow of a given channel through the body and that causes illness. We're supposed to be free. We're supposed to be free, open-hearted, loving, connected, intimately to humanity in a heart-to-heart, voice-to-voice, eye-to-eye, in-person way, which is why so much damage has been done over the last couple of years with isolation. And what enables that beautiful human-to-human connection, the channels, or is in particular the the heart channel, the the great low of the stomach, which we could also talk about. But these channels... The great low of the stomach. Yeah, the great low of the stomach, which is my absolute favorite channel of all, which we could talk about later, but... No, 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 I'm putting a pin in it. We're going to come back. Continue. All right. So illness is caused when the free flow of these channels is impeded by the mind. It's our minds that hang us up. If we could repeatedly put our minds aside and focus on heart-to-heart communication, eye-to-eye communication, loving speech, hugging everybody, then the channels would flow utterly freely. If we lived in the present moment, 
as the Chow channels, Yin Chow Mai and Yang Chow Mai, allow us to do. And we didn't have regret or anticipation. Now, that doesn't mean we can't plan. Then the channels would flow freely, but it's regret and anticipation and judgment that makes us sick. And the job of the acupuncturist is to look in the pulses and see which of these channels or organs, if you like, has been impeded by this rebellious mind, formulate a diagnosis based on that finding and then needle into the body and call upon the universal channel that's common to all humanity that corresponds with those needles to call upon that channel which is external to resonate again as it should resonate again in that human body in that patient in a way that re-enlivens that channel that frees that channel and it's the sensation of the freedom of being human that relaxes the mind and then allows that healing to happen so when you go to acupuncture school and you learn well if you find this problem if you find this set of symptoms this and this and this and this symptom then you're going to use this set of points and then you end up you graduate from school and you stick the needles in and you walk away and then after five years which is the average burnout period of our profession you say look this isn't really working and I feel like a technician I'm just needling the same six eight ten points in every patient because everyone seems to have the same problem with their digestive tract then you are going to burn out well and for good reason you're not effective yes you're not effective. you're not effective you're not living up to the promise of what the medicine has I mean, in some ways, this is when you actually start learning medicine. Yes. Three years of school and five years later, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to walk through the gate. Yeah. It takes a long damn time to learn to do this stuff. Yes. But if you treat acupuncture as a channel system, mm. not a point system, it is a channel system. The original channels, as they're described, and as they were practicing the Shang dynasty, like pre-Han dynasty, had no points. There were no acupuncture points. The channels at that time during the, the Shang dynasty, which dates from you know 10,000 BCE to 2nd century BCE, so that's a very long time. That's nearly 10,000 years. But in that period... The channels had no points. Not only did they not have any points, but they weren't even considered to be in the body. Now, I've got a question about this because I hear you say that they're not in the body, and I get it that there's an external aspect. As I've spent time cogitating and experimenting with five phases, six chi, I mean, it, it seems to me the channels are the way that I'm going to use this term in air quotes, we, this thing we call I, in this physical form, is connected with all this other physical form that's around us. Indeed, there's an external aspect, but isn't there also an internal aspect? Yes, but the internal aspect, yes, definitely. Mm. 
the channels exist in the body. That is true. But the existence in the body is a resonance okay. with the global channels. So you've got these grand flows of the channels through the planet. I love that term, the grand flows. Yeah, you've got these enormous grand flows of all these channels, in particular the eight extra channels, and then which I think speak most loudly. And then you've got the human body that is resonating internally and externally all of those channels, but it's a resonance. The channels in the human body are a resonance of the grand flow that goes through the planet. So when you needle into the, the body, you are creating a free flow in what effectively is a beautiful, potent echo of what is happening globally and so-called externally. Of course, there is no internal and external. We're just using those words to help enable the mind to capture these concepts. And the two are that there's no boundary between exterior and interior. And there's just as there's no boundary between the grand flow that is planetary or global or whatever, however you want to consider it, and the flow inside each individual human body. There's no separation between those. I'm just, I'm really using internal and external to differentiate where we as acupuncturists put our intention. Our intention's the flow of the channel in the individual, but our meditation practice could be on the grand flow. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So when I get it, that we can look at it from a, a space of non-differentiation. It's all part of a grand flow. I can see that, and that resonates true. There's various densities. There's various, I'm going to call them phase changes. Mm, I love that. Right, where it goes from maybe more like air to blood, okay? Yes. Things that are at the blood level, things at the earth level, things with a lot of yin, they don't change a lot. They're pretty damn formed, mm. right? They're pretty stable. Right. Things that are more young, more ethereal, more heaven, full of potential, not quite formed yet. So it, it seems that there's these 
as I see it, and I'd like to get your take, there's these like various levels and layers. So yes, we can say there's a grand flow and we're paying attention to that. But at the same time, I feel like there is an attentiveness to a place where something is being held fixed. Yes. And, and we need to pay some attention to it. Let me, let me come at this from another way. Let me see if this resonates for you. I grew up at a time there was no GPS. We had maps. Me too. And if I didn't know how to get somewhere, I'd look at a map and I'd kind of get an image in my mind. Sometimes I'd know the territory because I'd driven there before. And if I wanted to go like from my house to my favorite coffee shop, I kind of know how to get there because I already have an image in my mind and I've gone there before. I've got some muscle memory that, you know, I kind of know the way. If you don't know the way, you look at a map and maybe you got to go recheck the map and you're like navigating through this other territory that you've not been through before. These days, we have a device that will say, do this, do this, do this, do that. Very mechanical in a sense. I think of that old like wayfinding with a map. Is that more like undifferentiated? In some ways, you're paying attention to the entire journey. Yes. But then there's like where you are in particular on that route. Mm. Okay. Does that make sense in terms of thinking about this? Yeah, I love that. That's a fantastic analogy because in the old days. Last week? No, and I'm talking like 40 <laughs> years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've had a driver's license now for 40 years, and I, you know, you wanted to go to your friend's place. You couldn't have your, the street directory open on the passenger seat and be looking back and forth. You said, okay, I'm going to go to here and then I'm going to go through the fifth traffic line and I'm going to take that road for five miles and then I'm going to turn like, oh, kilometers it was for me. But <laughs> And both of those things actually, I think, are happening in the treatment mm -hmm. because you've got the grand picture in of, you know, I'm going from here to here. I'm going from spleen four to stomach one or I'm going from Young Chamai, I'm going from bladder 62 to gallbladder 20. That's my whole journey. And then the little GPS instructions are the individual points. Okay. So the second point, let's say bladder 61, the subservient visitor. So you're needling into that point. So that's like an instruction on the map. That's what you're saying, right? I love that. Is that what you're saying? I'm not really sure. The idea just came to mind. I'm just playing with wrapping my mind around these grand flows which are universal for lack of a better word yeah. and then we've got our personal flows and our personal experience within the meat suit that we inhabit you know both these it's not either or it's both and both. just like we have a personal consciousness and we have a, like a collective consciousness mm. they're both there this brings us back to mind. I want to, again, I'm, I'm coming back to the great law of the stomach here in a moment. I go all over the place. It's good. But you bring up mind, and, and I want to, mind is such a slippery thing, if you can even call it a thing, to talk about. So I have this experience in my clinic all the time. You probably do too, and all y'all is listening. I'm sure you've had it too if you practice any length of time. You do a treatment, 
someone gets off the table and their eyes widen and they're like, I don't have any back pain. It's not possible that it could be gone, is it? Mm. Right? They have a hard time believing their experience. Or they'll say things when they come back and how's your week been? How are you doing? Well, you know, I don't know if I'm just making this up or if I'm really better. We hear that kind of thing a lot. And so one of the questions I've had for a while now, I puzzle on this, right? This is like part of the mystery for me. It's like a koan. This is my acupuncture koan that I've been chewing on for a long time. That's what it is. Right. I just named it as a koan. I've been chewing on this for decades. When the mind makes the body well, we call it placebo. When the mind makes the body ill, we call it hypochondria. Okay, fine. What is up with the mind? That's a great koan. Yeah, it's annoying. That's all koans are. So I'd love to get your sense. I'd love to get your take about the mind. Because I hear you talk about taking a pulse and using your intention in a way that leaves you kind of empty, not unpresent, but just empty and receiving, right? There is an aspect of mind, that sense that we get some information from our patient and we say, spleen poor for you, or right. I mean, whatever the point is, right? It's like, oh, we've tuned into it. This is where we enter the inquiry. Yeah, these are such fantastic questions. I think that when you're feeling into a pulse, it's a kind of mindlessness. (laughs) That process of receiving is more, there's no word for it really. I want to say more spirit-based, but that sounds kooky and new age. Actually, every time I say to my students I'm worried about sounding kooky and new age, they said, are you kidding? This is kooky and new age business. So so I'm trying not to be too apologetic for the language. I do think we need a new language for it, though. I think you're right. There's a kind of a mindlessness about it. The mind that interferes with health is the mind that speaks from the database. So really... This is so complicated. I hope that I can be clear about how I think about it at least, that everything that the mind can vocalize is based on only what it has already experienced. It can only make a determination about what it has seen, heard, felt, smelled, tasted, all of those experiences over years and years that body has experienced are stored in the unconscious mind and the mind when it's asked to make a determination about something can only call upon that information. It's the spirit that can project forward and it's the spirit that can imagine different outcomes that's not really the mind that's more like a divine inspiration oh what if that happened what if we did that 
that's not coming from the mind. That's coming from the spirit because it's the spirit that receives information, not the mind. Mind is all limitation. And the spirit is free. Yes. And when the patient gets off the table and says, I have no pain, oh, my God. And then they come back the next week and they said, they say, you know, I was great for two days and then slowly it came back. That's a whole hour's conversation there. Oh, I find that one actually very, very easy. Oh, go ahead. So when people say that, I smile, I laugh a little, I go, that's great. Mm. That shows you have the capacity. Beautiful. Love that. I just leave it at that. Oh, that shows you have the capacity. Beautiful. What I like to say to the patient when they get off the table and they say, oh, my goodness, I have no pain at all, I like to say, first of all, I do a little laugh and I say, well, you're not here for nothing, right? <laughs> That's the first thing I say. And the second thing I say right after that is acupuncture really works. Acupuncture is a miraculous tool. It's a beautiful thing. Be well. Stay hydrated. See you next week or whenever. Just mm. treat it as though it's normal. Yes. People often think of it as a miracle. We just treat it as normal. Normalize it. That's, that's, yeah, it's normal. Well, that sends an interesting message to the mind then, doesn't it? It does. And it sends, in, at a potent moment, it sends that message to the mind of the patient. So immediately they have confirmation from the acupuncturist that what they are feeling is real mm -hmm. and that it was expected at all times, even though we know mysteriously we don't know where the limitation of the treatment is. So the expectation is always that the maximum possible healing can occur in that time. But if the patient gets the feeling that, yeah, this is normal, this is routine in this room, this is routine, then the healings come thick and fast. Okay. I want to swing back to the great law of the stomach. Oh, the great law of the stomach. Yeah. You sound like you're in love with this thing. I do love it. And I think about it a lot. And I meditate on it, on myself. <laughs> so the great law of the stomach appears in the Neijing, but it is gone. 150 years later, from the Nanjing. It, it, is, it does not appear in any other text. Why would they take it out? Why would the great law of the stomach be excised from the practice of acupuncture? And the reason is that by the time of the Nanjing, people were already starting to think more materialistically. And that is the history of acupuncture. The history of acupuncture to the present day, and fortunately in the last 20 years it's becoming reversed for the first time in a very, very long time since the Tang Dynasty really. But the history of acupuncture is this slow and steady quest to materialize it, to codify it, to measure it, to add points to it. Acupuncture originally just channels resonating over the body with no points on one side of the body. And then by the time we get to 
the Han Dynasty, we see points emerge. And then by the Song Dynasty, basically most of the channels are gone. The low channels are gone. The senior channels are gone. The divergent channels are gone. We're left with the eight extras and the 12 primary channels. And then we get to the 1950s and then really effectively the channels are gone. We're just left with collections of points and collections of points organised into groups. And just in the last 20 years or so, the channels are coming back, which is really fantastic. So the great low of the stomach really was the first casualty in the loss of the channels. And the reason was that great low of the stomach is never needled and it originates in the solar plexus and terminates as the heartbeat. So you can't needle into the heartbeat. In the solar plexus, you wouldn't needle a single point as a treatment at all because treatments are about the relationship between two points at least or two air, two regions at least. Hang on, I just want to put a pin in that because so often we think of, oh, I'm doing this point so it will do X, Y, Z. And what I just heard you say, this really rings true. It's about the relationship between two points. You need at least two points to be able to have that conversation. Yeah, chi is relationship. Mm -hmm. Chi is relationship. It's the, the way in which one region or one point relates to another. If you just needle one point, it's, um, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, oh, yeah, you put a, a metal pin in, that, in the skin, Big deal. Well, once you put another needle in another point, and then, well, now you've got something happening. Now those two points are going to talk to each other. What are they going to say? Or what is the intention of the practitioner in what they might entertain a conversation about? The great law of the stomach is the entry point and the termination of the inspiration that comes from the divine. Mm -hmm. So that's where we get the term. We still use the term gut feeling. The term gut feeling comes from the great law of the stomach. So we have a feeling in the gut that comes from the divine. And note that we've got a huge plexus of nerves there for that reason. It's not just digestion. It's for reception of divine inspiration. So our ideas and our brand new thoughts all come from there and then that channel creates a feeling of interest it creates that um, that area the solar plexus which is the beginning of the great law of the stomach creates feelings of interest oh i think i would really like to do this for example gosh i think i would really like to paint or i think i really need to cross the road here instead of a block from here Right, that's all coming from the solar plexus, and then that interest, that inspiration moves into the heart and becomes the heartbeat, it becomes the movement of life. And it's the heart, as we know, that governs and creates relationships, and it has branches to the, the throat, the root of the tongue, so that we speak that truth as a new truth, and then it has a root 
a branch to the back of the eyes so it shines this inspiration through the eyes which in turn activates the spirit and the Shen becomes very excited about what there is to do. And that's all with no needles. That's a channel for, um, for meditation but we can treat it through the eight extra channels. Any of the eight extra channels will activate that great low of the stomach. If I were to only treat the great low of the stomach in the clinic, I might actually put a needle in REN12 and a needle in liver 14, knowing that there are no points on the channel, but it's helping my intention activate that channel. And usually the patient will come back having some kind of major change or major decision or or they'll vocalize a new interest in something. I am so intrigued with the idea of the conversation between needles. It's been my experience when I was first thinking of going to acupuncture school. At that time, there were three of them in Seattle where I lived. Three? There used to be three in Seattle. Mm. Yeah, when I was looking to go to acupuncture school back in the 90s. And uh, I went and got a treatment at each of the schools, like several, because I wanted to get a taste of what it might be like. And I remember getting treated one time and thinking, eh, there's not much going on here. They put a needle here, needle here, needle there. Like, yeah, whatever. It's like nothing's going on here. One more needle went in and it was like a pinball machine. And I see this in my practice too, especially with certain combinations that I use. There's a certain needle that I know is going to like pull that net together and catch the fish. Hmm. Patients will often comment on it. They're like, whoa, what was that? Right. Yeah, it's curious stuff that we do here. And I have had more than one person who I've had conversations with say very similar things here, Anne, that acupuncture is about relationship. It's about conversation. It is not sticking needles in somebody. It's about having a conversation and a relationship. Yes. Well, it's all kinds of ways to have conversations and relationships. And as long as we know, I think that the verbal conversation and the relationship that we have with our patient may seem important, but it so pales in significance Mm. compared to the relationship that the practitioner is facilitating between points on a channel. That's the real relationship. So I tend to speak very little to the patient. I don't chat, you know, put them on the – I have a sofa. I don't have a a desk. I don't put the patient across a desk. I I really like to have them right next to me and I take the pulses with their wrists resting on their thighs and I lean across and take the left wrist from the right and, you know, as soon as they sit down – I don't say, like, how was your journey? How's your day going? How was your week? I always say, okay, so where's your, where are your thoughts today? Mm. Say something like that. Where are your thoughts today? It's, it's straight to them. So the relationship between practitioner and patient, I'm not making it about I know your kids' names and I know what's happening with your grandmother or whatever. I just, I don't make it about that. If those things are important, they'll come up. Mm -hmm. The patient will bring them up. What I really want to know is where their attention is in that hour, where their mind is that day. 
what they're thinking about. And for that reason, I don't ask them, so how is your head this week? Or how is your back this week? Or how is your anxiety this week? And I never ask that question. I say, okay, so where are we at this week? How are you this week? What are you thinking? What's on your mind? I love that. What's on your mind? That enables them to be in the moment. Because if you recall for the patient, the issue that they presented with the week before, even if it's very, very chronic and they come back every week, you're working on something that's seemingly intractable, like say rheumatoid arthritis, which I really think that that can be solved in about three months. But if you remind them every time they come back of the pain they were in the week before, you're not really enabling them to be fresh in the moment. Yes. Well, that question of what's on your mind, oh my goodness, what an invitation. What is present at this moment? Yeah. I mean, so often people come in, they go, wow, that last treatment you did, that rocked my world. Do that again. We all know that never works. Yeah. Right? You can't step in that river again. But if we can approach our patients and be with our patients in that present kind of way, then there's some potential for other things to come up. We don't know what they are. Right. It's so tricky to like keep ourselves out of it, but in it, like attentive. Yes. I studied quite a bit of Japanese acupuncture when I was in school. And one of the tricky things that our teacher always said is, as you're doing your palpation and as you're looking for information, you're also treating the patient. They will change as you use your sensing to see what's going on with them. Oh, so true. Especially when taking the pulses, you know, as you change the pressures in your fingers to see how the pulses are, are behaving, how the organs are conversing with each other, you're actually creating qigong in the pulses that in turn produces an internal effect on the organ. So the pulse taking is most definitely here. So there's no way, and they've found this in modern quantum physics, there's no way to observe something without also influencing what's being observed. So I think we need to be a little bit cautious. Yes. I want to come back to one more thing, and then we should probably land this for the day, although we could probably talk for hours and maybe need to come back again at some point. But I want to come back to something that you had said earlier. Again, it's kind of a koan. I just want to take another run at it here because it's tasty. You talked about certainty and mystery in the same sense. That seems like a contradiction to most people, I would think, at least on the surface. So could you unpack that just a little bit more? Sure. First of all, you're in an environment of mystery. Once you have your fingers in the pulse, even in conversation, right, there's a certain mystery there. You can't know everything about everyone. You can't know everything about their illness. You can't know everything about their evolution that got them to that illness. But once you put your finger in the, the pulses, then you're in a even deeper mystery. You're in a realm that is totally mysterious to the patient. It's profoundly intimate to go into somebody's pulses. You can see things in there that they're not aware of. You know, you can see a lot of what has occurred in the past for them. And I used to say to patients sometimes, I say, oh, 
I feel that you had some some cheese. Maybe you had a pizza or something, a slice of pizza or something for dinner, which I stopped saying because they would usually be a bit ashamed about it. You know, that's looking too far. Or I would say, you know, I see that you had some kind of trauma between the age of birth and eight and they didn't actually know about it and then the next week they would know about it and it was the whole world was blown open so I'm now very careful about what I say about what is felt in that mystery but what the practitioner can see in that mysterious realm of the pulses is still extremely limited at the same time what the pulses show the practitioner is exactly what the practitioner needs to be shown to do the correct treatment for that time, for that patient. And so at the same time as you're recognising that you're reaching into a mystery, you're absolutely certain that what reaches you from that mysterious realm is precisely what you need to act on, which is what you were referring to before. So you end up with a kind of a modest like a humble, absolute certainty that this is what I am here to do today for this patient, to facilitate today for this patient. And then you approach that treatment with the utmost certainty. And then as you needle into the point, you're aware that you're going into a mysterious realm that you don't know how the body is going to choose to take that treatment and make sense of it and correlate it to the information that came out of the pulse, you don't know. Sometimes you put a needle in a patient, like say it just happened to me the other day, I put a needle in bladder 59 and the patient felt a searing pain at small intestine 7 on the opposite side of the body. Now, I would have to think for about three minutes to work out the map that leads from bladder 59 to small intestine 7, but it happens, or maybe I can't at all. Maybe I can't work out how on earth it would manifest over there. And in the end, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The body has taken that treatment and it's decided that it needs to activate a low point. And I find that so deliciously mysterious. It's endlessly humbling. And the message is, You're just a catalyst for this change. You're simply, you're like, a practitioner is like an angel in the room. They're not really doing anything. They're just shining a light. I don't think of myself much as an angel, but I often do think of myself as an enzyme. Yes, catalyst. Catalyst. There's a spark. Something comes up. Mm. You know, like you say, you could get it from the pulse. There's lots of ways to get it. You might get it from the tongue. There's many ways that our patients speak to us, but whatever it is that comes up out of that mystery, it's like, okay, this is where we're going today with clarity, with certainty, and then we'll see what happens. Yes. Then we'll see what happens. Perhaps mystified by it, but we will know that whatever happens was what was due to happen. Well, and it also helps us to clarify things. Mm. Oh, wow. You know, if something really helped oh, I see this aspect now that I didn't see before. Or maybe you got it totally wrong. People get worse. I've had people get worse. I thought I was doing the right thing. And they get worse. Very helpful information. Very. 
And I would much rather, I don't want to make people worse. I mean, do no harm, right? I'm, I'm down with that. But I would rather follow that kind of inquiry and treatment and have it get worse because now I've got more information than to treat four different channels and they come back and they go, well, maybe I'm a little better. Now we know nothing happened. In fact, maybe you made things worse. It's just more muddy. Now it's harder to work. Yeah. Not more clear. At least you can strike something off and go, not that. Or if I do come back to it at some point, you come back with caution. Right. I gave someone nightmares for two weeks. Mm. She came back with the same nightmare. I had to do the opposite treatment of what I did. And then went away. It was like, whoa, okay. That's learning something. Right. Uh, but it takes that trust. I'm going to follow this thing that's present. Thank you. Mystery and certainty. It's kind of one of those inhale, exhale <laughs> kinds of things. They are both present and essential. Yeah. Thank you. Where do people find you if they want to know more about what you're doing? Well, thank you for asking. My website, ancecilsturman.com, and my books are on that website, but they're also on Amazon. There are three books, Advanced Acupuncture, then the second book, The Art of Pulse Diagnosis, and the third book, Tongue Diagnosis. So they're my two more books coming out this year. And I offer twice a month on Monday afternoons, although it's recorded and so People who subscribe can play at any time. But every two weeks, we run a case review class. So people come online, it's a Zoom class, and they present their difficult cases or their difficult questions, and sometimes simple questions. And we take the case and we work it out, and we try to work it out. We do our best and answer as many difficult questions as we can. And that is a monthly subscription that's probably our best offering, and there are many online courses on the website as well. Thanks for asking. Of course, yeah. You know, one of the things that is fun about being kind of an enzyme is is connecting people with resources and, and ideas. It's what Geological is about. So I'll make sure all that's on the show notes page as well. And thank you so much for the time today. This has been delightful, insightful. Didn't mean to rhyme that, but there you go. I've got so much to think about, and I really appreciate your time today and the uh, and the inquiry that we spent a little time with. Well, Michael, it's been a joy. Thanks for such a, a wonderfully, well, deep conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Acupuncture is fun. It really is fun and magnificent too. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. There is so much that Anne touched on and more than a few aspects of practice that had some illumination shown onto them. I am particularly sparked by Anne's navigating of this seemingly incompatible experiences of certainty and mystery. Like so many apparent opposites, there is a unity that arises that is not the gray middle of canceled energies, but rather a more enlivened and textured way of engaging potent forces that can aid us in the practice of medicine. And the differentiation between 
mind and spirit, between that which knows and that which inspires, between that which is conditioned and that which is free and unfettered. You could hone it down to right and left brain functioning, and that wouldn't be wrong. But the two hemispheres in our head are, I suspect, simply another manifestation of these potent forces of creation and embodied life. And finally, the reminder that it is the moment of needling that allows us to go deeper into the mystery of what makes us human and invites the latent resources of our patients to be enlivened and to emerge. It's both an invitation and an inquiry. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.